Overturn our captivity, O Lord, as when streams refresh the deserts of the south. Amen. In many ways, the parable in today's gospel retells the story of the prodigal son last week, but from a different vantage point, doesn't it? I think the lectionary, the assigned readings for the church today, purposely juxtaposes, purposely puts these texts one right after the other. The parable of the prodigal son, and then the parable today of the wicked tenants. The parable of the wicked tenants. These, this parable, today's, also highlights some of the same things from last week. Number one, the foulness and depth of our sin. That is, a rebellious pride. And number two, more than our sin, is the patient love and the greatness of God's love for us. The patient, long-suffering greatness of God's love for us. But unlike last week, Jesus is in today's parable, isn't he? Last week, he's the teller of the parable, the prodigal son. This week, he is the beloved son, spoken of in the parable. So quickly, let's look at some of the characters here in today's reading from Luke. God the Father, we find out in this text, is the owner of the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard, the creator. The vineyard itself, right? The vineyard spoken of is God's chosen people, the Hebrews. The wicked tenants are the leaders of the Hebrews. The servants are the prophets sent to them. And of course, the owner's son is Jesus Christ himself. So the first thing in this parable is to understand its context. Where do we get these assigned characters from? Well, if you look earlier in chapter 20, what's going on in Luke chapter 20? We've jumped ahead from the prodigal son. And if you just look in your Bibles... What's the possible heading that you might have at the beginning of chapter 20? Or if you look at it quickly in the text, it'll jump out to you. What's going on? Anybody? Thank you. Jesus' authority is challenged. Jesus' authority is challenged. And by whom? By whom? the same people that come at the end of the parable today, right? Look at chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered to them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another. And of course, they're perplexed. They don't know what to answer the rest of that gospel reading, right? Because they fear angering the crowd. 
But for today's Gospel reading, do you see how this is part of that story? This is part of Jesus' answer to this challenge to his authority by the chief priests and the scribes. As we look at today's parable then, we see God's answer. The parable is meant to look particularly at Jesus' position in regard to the Hebrew people. Yes, that's the first reading of the text. But the second reading of the text here is to look at the larger picture, the picture of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in relation to all humanity. For there's nothing in the Jewish people and there's nothing in the Jewish leaders that is not in you and me. Right? We are all potential tyrants, it has been said, and it's true. Notice, when we look at humanity, we see what about the vineyard? Well, we see God, purely out of love, beginning the world as the planter. We know that God chose Abraham to choose the Hebrew people, not because they're great in any way, but because he chose them. And we see that for 400 years, the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt before God brings them through the exodus of the Red Sea and to the Holy Land after 40 years of wandering. Notice, the Old Testament passage that we read today was what? Was Isaiah chapter 43. Look at that text with, with me today. Our first reading, Isaiah 43 starting with verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who made a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. What's that referring to? God's people exiting slavery through the Red Sea. Remember, remember, Isaiah's saying, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Not just in the Red Sea, but how many times does God save his people in the Old Testament? How many times does he save his people from overwhelming odds, from armies, from the Egyptians, one of the greatest armies in the world? And then, of course, later in Canaan. Isaiah continues, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing, Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? It's a curious turn of phrase here that Isaiah switches from saying, remember these things to looking forward to the new thing that God's doing. You see, God has planted the vineyard. God's rescued his people. God's done miracle upon miracle, defeating their their opponents' armies. And both Isaiah in this passage and then the parable in Luke reminds us that God's people are rebellious and grumbling despite God's great generosity. Now look again at Luke chapter 20 in the Gospel, verse 9 through 11. We're jumping around a little today, but I think it's important. Luke chapter 20, verse 9 through 11. And he began to tell the people this parable a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when he came, 
he sent us, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Do you see how patient God is? Do you see that the three servants here in this parable are sent by the owner not to collect some exorbitant amount, but merely what's due? Merely the, the, the fruit of the vineyard. And how do they treat the servants? They beat them and send them away empty-handed. They beat them and treat them shamefully. They wound and cast them out. Now think about people listening to this parable. How would they react to this story? Wouldn't they be outraged? Wouldn't you be outraged if you were hearing this for the first time? You know, this is part of the problem with some of these familiar stories is that we hear them over and over again and they lose our power. But I was thinking about this today. Uh, my great-grandfather used to tell me the story. He had a half-brother. And he invited his half-brother into his carpentry shop. And his half-brother, as soon as he entered into the service of my great-grandfather, started organizing a union in his carpentry shop. Talk about ingratitude. He took the guy off the street, and the guy starts making trouble for him in his own business. So he had to take his half-brother aside and say, Look, you can't do this. I have to fire you. And he fired him and, and got him another job because he was a generous man. But that's what's going on here, and worse. Right? To put it in modern perspective, this is like the tenant coming to get his, what is duly owed him and the servants don't just withhold it, they actually trash the business and won't give him anything. Does that strike you a little bit differently, maybe? I don't know, you could probably think of your own examples of ingratitude, right, if that one doesn't work. But notice, God sends the prophets to his Hebrew people time and time again. What happens to the prophets? Do people listen to the prophets? Oh yes, they're in Scripture, like, they're preserved for us, but, but what's the reaction generally? What happens to Isaiah, the prophet that we quoted today? He gets sawn in half. Not real nice, right? What happens to Jeremiah? What happens to, well, you get the idea. They beat the prophets in their wickedness. Though God is trying to help them, they swat away the hand that tries to help them. And so finally, in God's long-suffering, in his patience, what does he do? Well, we read today, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? In verse 13. Now, remember, this is a parable. It's not like God's scratching his head saying, Man, I don't know what to do, right? But Jesus is driving the point home here. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will listen to him. Perhaps they will respect him. Sorry. Another translation says, perhaps they will reverence him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? The end of verse 15. Now, of course, 
we know who the beloved Son is, don't we? Notice Jesus uses the very language that God the Father uses to talk about Jesus when he's baptized. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Or on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the voice comes in the cloud, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So it is that this is the beloved Son in the parable. This is Jesus. Listen to him. The owner doesn't have anyone else to send. Now, what else could the owner have done? I should say the owner doesn't have any other son to send. What else could the owner have done? Well, the owner could have come with a bunch of strong, mighty men, right? Vineyard owners aren't weak, poor people, right? So he could have come and taken the vineyard by force. He could have destroyed them. But he sends his son to them instead. He gives the tenants every chance in the world to repent. He gives them every chance to turn away and to respect him. And of course, our Lord knows full well that as he says this to those in authority, to the scribes and the chief priests who he's talking to, and he knows full well how they're going to react to him. And he knows full well how we react to him in rebellion when he speaks to us and when we're disobedient to him too. Of course, our Lord Jesus Christ knows what the end of the story is and who it references. Now, those who are listening to Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the scribes rather, know precisely what he's saying too, notice. Look again at verses 15 and 16. What what does Jesus say? He answers his own question, right? They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not! You could also translate that, may it never be. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. How do the scribes and the chief priests react to that? Are they like, oh yeah, that's good news, Jesus. Thank you. No. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. You see, whenever the Lord Jesus quotes Scripture, he does so very intentionally. And do you know what scripture he's quoting here when he talks about the cornerstone? Does any, has anyone looked at, maybe you have a study Bible and you can see it. Do you know what scripture he's talking about here? What's he quoting? It's Psalm 118. It's Psalm 118, verse 22. In the new prayer book, page 426, I, I know you don't have your prayer books on here because we're using the old rite. But in quoting this, what is Jesus claiming? What gets them so ticked off 
I'll read it to you. This is the same psalm, but verses 6 and 7. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. The Lord takes my side with those who help me. Therefore shall I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to trust in the Lord than put any confidence in man. What Jesus is saying to them in answer to the question, by what authority do you get to speak this, is the Lord is on my side. I don't have to be afraid of you, chief priests, religious leaders. Even though I know that you will crucify me, I don't have to fear you. Do you see the power of what Jesus is saying? Later on, when he says, verse 22 of Psalm 118, the same stone which the builders refused has become the chief cornerstone. And verse 23, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And I'm just going to keep reading a couple verses here because it ties the whole thing together. The very next verse. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Help me now, O Lord. O Lord, send us now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When do we say that last part of that psalm? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every week in Holy Communion, but particularly next week on Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Right? Do you see the connection here? Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do you see what he's drawing them and us into? This is exactly what he says to the leaders. Your time is up. You are the wicked tenants. You had your time and God has extended every mercy to you, every chance to you that you might turn back to him. But now, the cornerstone which you've rejected is the stone which you rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Our Lord Jesus sees his passion coming full on. But he says this, giving them one last time to repent. Will they repent? Or does the pride that they have harden their hearts? What happens? The pride hardens their hearts. And so we march to the Passion. Now when we look at this, how do we apply this text to our lives? Well, as we go into this next week of Lent, we're entering what the church has called Deep Lent. Right? Deep Lent. If this was our own church, we would veil all of the crosses in purple today. We would fast from our, with our eyes from the Lord We would go into a deep Lent and we would meditate, and we still can, of course, meditate on Christ's deep love for us in the Passion itself as we come to Palm Sunday next week. And so, friends, as we do walk into this next week, take with you what's being said in this parable. Number one, we've been talking about the foulness of sin for quite some time now in Lent, right? But... Focus on number two, the patience of God. The patience of God. Just how much 
He is long-suffering in regards to us. How He waits for us. How He seeks after us despite our rebellion. Bishop J.C. Ryle, 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, says that while, Christ, while Jesus' judgment here is against the Jewish leaders, it also applies to Christians. For he says that Christians, too, were called out of heathen darkness by God's infinite mercy. They've done nothing worthy of the vocation wherewith they were called. On the contrary, we've too often allowed false doctrine and wicked practices to spring up, frankly, among us and have crucified Christ afresh. Yet, God is long-suffering to us. Sometimes when you wonder, why does God put up with me? Or why does God not call the steeple of those churches to fall in on those people? We hear Bishop Ryle's words to us again. Despite trying God's patience with false doctrines, superstitions, and contempt of God's word, he's granted seasons of refreshing, raised up holy ministers and mighty reformers, and not cut us off. Praise God. What are we called to do? Well, of course, we're called to resist false doctrine and wickedness constantly that's assaulting the church and ourselves. We're called, as our colleague said earlier, to put to death those affections, those things that draw us away from God, as the colleague of the day says. But finally, the biggest lesson to take from this passage, friends, is that you and I are called to be on our guard. Be on your guard against hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. What does that mean? You know, there's a tendency for those of us that have been in the liturgical church for a while to be like, oh, I've, gone, I've done this all before. I've heard this parable before. I know about Passion Tide. I've gone through Lent, you know, 40 sometimes, 50 sometimes, 80 sometimes, however old you are, right? However long you've been in, in, in this tradition. I've gone through all that before. I've heard the Passion before. Whatever. That's hardness of heart. That's hardness of heart. Don't be like the wicked tenants, ungrateful for what God has done for you. Don't lose sight of God's new love and mercy, refreshed year after year, day after day for you and for me. Guard yourself against that hardness of heart. And finally, look with hope to the passion. For the passion of Jesus Christ is not just something to be somber about but it's something to rejoice in, that he loves you and I this much, that he loves you and I this much, and we get to enter and walk with him in this tremendous act of love, year after year, just seeing how much he loves us. Friends, harden not your hearts as we walk into Holy Week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we go forth into deep Lent this week and then Palm Sunday next week, we ask, Lord, that you would touch us with your Holy Spirit in a new way, that we would be refreshed, 
that you would reveal to us those things which are not of you, those things that block us, those things that sometimes we cling on to, that harden our hearts. Lord, break through them and make us tender, tender to your love that we might act and bring about fruit of repentance. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.